Well, great singing. Have a seat. And as we uh, welcome our other campuses, Cactus, Northridge, and Chapel, uh, welcome. And we're going to be starting a new series today out of the New Testament book of Hebrews. More on that in just a minute. But before we get to that, I want to share a couple of housekeeping issues, really encouraging stuff as we prepare for the year ahead. Uh, The first is that, and I want to be kind of brief about this, but hopefully uh, you'll hear the thanks behind it. You know, every December, uh, your church does basically one reminder. We do one weekend where we remind you to uh, please don't forget your church in in year-end giving. In in a town like this, in an area like this, we know that many of you give generously, as you should, to lots of different causes and places, and we encourage that. Uh, But we say, hey, you know, don't forget your church because we're kind of on track too. And we mention it very low-key, but it's evident that you guys hear that because we got to the end of this year and it was uh, we ran out of Sundays and we still had a long way to go. And I got a, a little bit of a call, not a panicky call, but just a concerned call from one of our elders and one of our pastors who monitor this stuff. And I said, you know, historically, uh, Scottsdale Bible has a great history of people saying, hey, we got this. We got our eye on our church and, and, and we're okay. And sure enough, you know, we get to the end of the year and not only did you guys uh, take care of your church, but even then some. So just thank you for remembering your church. And we don't talk about a lot, but yeah, you can clap at that. It's just, it, it doesn't escape my notice. And, and I appreciate that. Because, you know, for me, the gift is I don't have to lay awake at night worrying about that stuff. I lay awake at night worrying about you. So, you know, that's what I get, get to focus on is people not hey, where are we gonna get resources? So that's a real gift to me, and I appreciate that. Uh, The second thing I wanna mention as we go into the new year is that obviously we have a ton of stuff going on at our church, at your church. You can see it in the bulletin, the website, the e-news that we send out every Thursday night. But there's one particular thing going on I wanna highlight, and and you'll hear why over the next uh, minute and a half, and that's that we're, uh, classes starting next Sunday that's been taught before Four called Racial Unity in the Church. I said about a year and a half, it was June a year ago, when a lot of stuff was going on in our culture, that Scottsdale Bible Church does not jump on cultural bandwagons. We don't address things simply because culture does, but this idea of racism and racial unity, which is the positive way of saying it, is very real. It has been for thousands of years, and that the Bible does have some key and concerted things to say about racial unity. Back then, Jew versus Gentile. Today, obviously, racial unity among different cultural and racial lines. And so a few years ago, one of our elders, Sam Melvin, who is an African-American man who grew up here in Phoenix, he's a native Phoenician, developed a class that he teaches. Again, he's a sitting elder in our church, and it's called Racial Unity in the Church. And it is a phenomenal class. I will tell you it's not for the faint-hearted. Sam doesn't play t-ball, he plays hardball. So it's something that you would want to prepare yourself for to delve deeply and richly into this issue and to be able to think and humble yourself and what have you. But if this interests you at all, the idea of racial unity and how our church responds to it, this would be a good starting place, Sam's class. It starts next Sunday, goes through April, and, or beginning of April at 11.30, so this hour at, at A3. 
If you're interested in this, I was encouraged to also let you know to sign up on our website, at the church website, because if we have more people than A3 will hold, we'll switch rooms and accommodate that. So there's lots of other stuff going on at our church. I hope all of you roll up your sleeves and get involved because maybe one of your New Year's resolutions shouldn't be just to get thinner, but to get more spiritually fit, and, uh, and, and I hope we can help you with that. So with that said, we're diving into a new series today. More on that in 30 seconds. First, let's pray. God, thank you for your goodness and for your grace. Thank you for the worship that we can have here as well as at Cactus Northridge Chapel. I pray, God, that as we uh, start this new series today, that, Lord, you would catch some of us off guard. May we uh, be surprised by joy. May we find freshness and goodness in your word at the beginning of this year, I pray. And I pray this in Christ's name, and we all say together, amen. So as I mentioned before I prayed, we're embarking on a, this morning on a 15-week series in the New Testament book of Hebrews. And some of you are freaking out already, 15 weeks, that's like, let me see, carry the one, four months uh, in one book of the Bible. <clears throat> It'll actually be longer than that because we're gonna spend between now and the end of June in it because we're gonna break it up with some other stuff. But I can tell you right now, if ever a book in the Bible is worth spending six months in, this book is. Because what you're gonna see today as I wet your whistle is that the book of Hebrews is a powerful book, an insightful book, a life-altering book, and here's the promise. If you will let it, it can change the way you think about God and your spiritual life. It really can. Because the book of Hebrews does something that no other book in the New Testament does. Now watch this. It marries two themes that all of you are familiar with, one from your life and one from your understanding of God. It marries the theme of who Jesus is with your need to persevere when things get tough. I can't think of a more timely topic than perseverance right now, right? With all that's going on with a virus and culture and even maybe in your life right now, there's a need to persevere. And yet here's the problem with that concept. Our world and culture talks all the time about perseverance. All of you know the slang that's used. People say, don't give up, keep on keeping on, hang in there. You know, when you get to the end of your rope, tie a knot and hang on for dear life. Our world is really into perseverance, and Christians are really into Jesus, but rarely do we marry the two. Rarely do we have an, an intelligent conversation with each other or with God or with ourselves on how do the two come together, Jesus and the need for us to persevere. And that's exactly what the book of Hebrews does. It does a deep dive into the person of Jesus. It will explain things to you and I that you thought you knew about Jesus, but you didn't. And then it's also gonna have this underlying theme of persevering when things get really tough, because back then, these groups of Christians that it was written to were really beat up and show us how the two come together. And so today, I'm gonna set it up by looking at chapter one. We're gonna look at a different chapter each week and show you where this book is going. And in keeping with the twin themes of Jesus and the need to persevere, the very first thing this book does, right in its opening salvo, is introduce us to Jesus and why, specifically why he needs to be the centerpiece of it all. 
So before I give you the main point, look with me at how the first sentence in this long book, it's 13 chapters, it's 7,000 words, over 300 verses. Look at the very first sentence, what it says. It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke. And he spoke to our fathers and mothers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has still spoken to us, but now by his son. So isn't that an interesting way to start this book? It basically says, in case you've ever wondered, God is not silent. He speaks. He makes himself known. And in the Old Testament, in the previous days, he would speak by the prophets. Think Moses, Elijah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel, all the prophets. And he spoke that way. But in these last days that have been going on now for 2,000 years, God has chosen to speak to us through his son, Jesus. And the rest of this opening chapter fills in the gaps on exactly why Jesus is so critical as the pathway to God, as our access to God, even as our impetus and source of perseverance. And so here is our main point today. It's a summary of what chapter one sets up for the rest of this book, and it's this, that the chapter's gonna go on to show us that your creator God, your creator God, came to this earth to rescue you. Let me repeat that. Your creator God, we're gonna tie this to Jesus, came for one reason and one reason only, and we're gonna do a deep dive in this over the next half hour, to rescue you. So let's break this apart and notice how Hebrews 1 builds this case of a creator God with the name Jesus who came to rescue us. And the case begins to be built right in the second verse, we just looked at the first verse of Hebrews chapter one, when he says, when it says this about Jesus, and I'm also gonna to go to verses eight and 10. It says, God has spoken to us by his son, we saw that, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also, here it is, he created the world. Notch that away. Then verse eight and 10. But of the son, he says, you, O Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands. Interesting. You and I think about and talk about Jesus often in our lives. We talk to others about Jesus and we say things like he's Lord and Savior and all these things. When was the last time you told somebody that Jesus was the agent of all creation? You probably haven't because we don't tend to think of him like that. But if we're reading this right, it's essentially saying to us that in Genesis 1, when it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, it's talking to us about Jesus, that he was the person of the Trinity that came and, and created this world, that nothing was laid without him doing it, which is why I'm gonna build this case for a creator God who came to save us. So we get the creation part. Why do we say that he is God? Well, the logic would go that if he made the world, then he's probably just not a mere human being, amen? And so only God could be the one making the world. And interestingly, the rest of chapter one in Hebrews explodes in giving us all this information in staccato format that Jesus is indeed God. He's the creator God. Let me show you, again, in, in kind of a rapid-fire staccato way. 
The very next verse, we've seen verse one, verse two, now verse three says, and he, Jesus, as the creator, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Man, I'm telling you, this book is so rich in theological understanding. When it says he's the radiance of the glory of God, I taught you guys a few years ago that the glory of God is anything that emanates from God. So glory means light. And when the glory of God emanates from him, it stems from any time God speaks, any time God acts, that's his glory. So again, when you see a mountain and you think of God because God created this world, that's God's glory. The heavens declare the glory of God. And it's saying that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. Jesus emanates from God because he is God and he's God that we can see. That's what it means that he's the radiance of his glory. And then when it says he's the exact imprint of his nature, man, I could do a whole sermon on that phrase. The fact that the imprint there means an exact copy. It pictures the back then a chiseled copy of something. And nature, hypostasis, literally means the, the essence of a person. And this is where we start to formulate the Trinity, which is beyond our look today, but this idea that you have God, that, that is God the Father in person, and then God the Son in person, because the only way we can understand it is that Jesus is God, but there's also God the Father, and then God the Holy Spirit, one God existing in three persons. Why? Because of things like this. And again, this whole chapter is filled with this stuff. It's just ramping up here. Look now at verse 6. It says of Jesus, let all God's angels worship him. That's a clue. Uh, the whole Old Testament says you worship nobody but God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not have any idols. You shall not bow down to them. Yet it's saying here that the highest celestial beings, angels, worship Jesus. Well, they could only do that if he was God. And then another, another <coughs> direct reference to his deity is found in verse 8 where it says, but of the Son, he, God the Father, says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So again, it's quoting an Old Testament psalm here, but it's essentially saying that Jesus is called God by God the Father. Again, we're trying to understand this, a direct reference to his deity. A creator God came to this earth, the creator God, in Jesus to do something for you. And then to finish the thought, I know I'm throwing a lot at you, but blame the Bible, not me. There's four phrases in chapter one that are not direct references to Jesus's deity. I told you this is kind of like in rapid fire staccato fashion, but these are descriptions that when you read them honestly, they can't be describing a human being. So they use these phrases in light of Jesus. They say he's the heir of all things, meaning all things eventually are gonna to go to him. He upholds all things by the word of his power, meaning he's that omnipotent, that sovereign, that providential, that powerful. He's much better than the angels, the highest celestial beings. And then this one kind of takes the cake. God says of Jesus, you are the same and your years will not come to an end. So he's eternal in nature. Here's the deal, guys. I started investigating this stuff 40 years ago. There's a lot of godly, spiritual men and women in the history of the world. I mean, people like Joan of Arc and, you know, St. Augustine and Aquinas and Calvin and Luther and Martin Luther King Jr. in our, in our 20th century. There's lots of people who, who are very godly and, and maybe paradigms of spirituality. Here's the point. You'd never describe them like this, would you? 
Would you say of any human being that they are the heir of all things, they uphold all things by the word of their power, that they're better than angels and that they're eternal in nature? No, you wouldn't. These are things that you use to describe divinity. And so the case that the book of Hebrews makes right in chapter one here is that we have a creator God in Jesus who came to this earth to do something very specific for us that we'll get to in a minute that can rock our world. Now, before we get to that, I do wanna mention as a quick side note that one of the reasons that this discussion, we spent probably the last maybe 10 minutes on discussing this idea of Jesus being the creator God. One of the reasons that this is so important is because not only is our culture today confused about this, but even many in the church, and use the church as a capital C, the lots of different churches are confused about this. You know, our, our culture really loves to poll people. You ever notice that? Yeah, Gallup and Barna and Real Clear Politics and all that stuff. We, we love to do polls, and many of them are, are very well done. About a year ago, uh, during the pandemic, uh, one of the powerhouses polled a bunch of Americans on what they believe now about spirituality. And, and again, it shouldn't surprise us what they found for the first time in, in a very, very long time, in fact, that I know of, they found that the majority of Americans, just 52%, believed that Jesus existed, but he was simply a great teacher. That forget about all this creator God stuff, forget about divinity, that, that Jesus was one of the great religious leaders, kind of like Gandhi and, and, and some other great religious leaders, and, and he was a great teacher, but nothing more. 52% of Americans believe that. That's a tipping point, because for a country that has a Judeo-Christian heritage, to get to that point is revealing about where our culture is today. But that's not what surprised me. That didn't surprise me at all. What surprised me about the same study is that 30%, 30% of self-identified evangelical Christians, people in churches, also agreed that Jesus was a mere teacher only. Yeah, wow. And again, to even know what an evangelical Christian is, to say yes to that means that I know I'm born again and I believe the Bible and I have an experience with God that has saved my soul. 30% of those folks said that Jesus was a mere teacher and nothing more. And so to show you the power of this, let's have some fun with this. I want you right now to look to the person on your right. Everybody turn to your right, look to the person on your right and smile. Come on, you're not doing it. Turn to the person on your right. Good, that's your daughter, that's cool. And now turn to the person on your left and smile at them, good. One of you is a heretic. That's what that statistic shows. Now, don't look at your neighbor and say you're a heretic, but th that's what it's saying here, that one in three people sitting in churches, evangelical churches that hold a high view of the Bible are at best, I'll be kind, hazy about the person of Jesus. And we understand that our culture would be messed up here, but it's infiltrated the church and so one of the relevant aspects of this book is that it will, I mean, you think we've scratched the surface today. When we get to chapters 7, 8, 9, 10, when it talks about, about who Jesus is, there's an intricate understanding of him. Even next week, chapter 2, that can blow our minds and cement us in a right understanding of Jesus. Many of you think you're already there, but let's humble ourselves and say we've got some room to grow because that's what this series is going to do for our souls but that's not the point of today. The point of today is that our right understanding of Jesus as creator God leads us to the second half of our main point. Remember the main point, your creator God, here it is, 
came to rescue you. He came to rescue you. Now, let's understand very clearly what the Bible means, what the book of Hebrew means by rescue you. And, and, and I asked our, our tech guys to pull out the old whiteboard today uh, to do this. I, I gotta tell you, it's really funny. Our tech guys, if you've noticed, they're all young and they have man buns and things like that. And every time I, every time I, I say to them, you know, I wanna use the whiteboard, they just smirk at me. I mean, they look at me like I you know, was born in 1964, which I was. And so, so I, I like the whiteboard sometimes because, here, give me a blow up of this, you could guys. I, I like the whiteboard because it, it, I can put more on here than I can the monitor. So their technology is not what they think it is. The whiteboard is actually more helpful for communicating things like how do we understand that Jesus rescues. Now, let's start with where the book of Hebrews does. The book of Hebrews in the third verse of chapter one clearly tells us why Jesus came to this earth. And that is to forgive you of your sin and bring you into a right relationship with God that will lead to eternal life. Look at how it says it. It could not be more clear. It says, after he, Jesus, had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So it's interesting. As soon as Jesus came to do one thing for us and one thing only, he shot right back up into heaven. Man, if I come over to your house and, and, and I do one thing for you only, whatever it might be, and then I leave, you would get the impression that what I came to do was what I came to do, Amen that I'm not doing any more than that. Jesus came to this earth and he made purification for our sins and then he shot back up to heaven. So what does it mean purification for our sins? Well, if you know what sins are, you're steeped in it every day and I mean your own. There anything that we do, say, think or feel that separates us from God. Anything that's not in line with his law, with his goodness and we all sin. And because of that, sin separates us from God which is why many people don't feel close to God. And Jesus came 2,000 years ago, here's the operative word, to provide purification for our sins. That's a beautiful word. It means to wash you. It means to cleanse you. It pictures the fact that you had a dirty body or a dirty soul in this case, and that Jesus purified it. As the book of Isaiah would prophesy, your sins used to be red as scarlet, he made them white as snow. And Jesus did this by going to the cross. The book of Hebrews is gonna give us an, an elaborate understanding of this. Went to the cross and he took your sin upon himself and he paid the price that you should have paid so that you could be forgiven by God, so that your soul could be clean. As Jeremiah prophesied, that every day you'd wake up and you'd experience that his mercies are new every morning for you. That's the gospel, that Jesus came to bring you forgiveness that leads to eternal life. And if you believe that, if you believe in him, now we're gonna have some fun with this. What the Bible calls this is a promise. In other words, if you believe in Jesus, the promise is, not, some of you don't feel it this morning, but it's true right now where you sit, you are 100% forgiven for every sin that you've ever done even the sins that you did in the parking lot before you came here today. Every sin that you're gonna commit from this point on for the rest of your life, if you have embraced Jesus and believe in him, you are purified of your sins, you are forgiven. And because of that, you now have eternal life with him forever. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. We call this the gospel and it's a promise 
Ephesians 1 says that it's your guarantee of your inheritance. Jesus said in John that my sheep know my name and nobody can snatch them out of my hand. There's all these verses that say that this is a promise to you. How has Jesus rescued you? He has saved you eternally through forgiveness in himself. But the rescue doesn't stop there. There is a second way that Jesus then at this point goes on to rescue you. And that is that he now wants to make a better you now. Theologians have made a distinction for years between justification, the fact that you're justified before God through Jesus, now watch this, and sanctification, which means, as we sang about earlier, he wants to make you more holy. In other words, he wants to make you a better you. It's Colossians chapter one, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And some of you aren't gonna like this word, but it is the most realistic word that the Bible gives you. If this is a promise, then the better you now is on its best day probable. Probable, what do I mean by that? We don't have time to go into the details today, but I talk about this often enough. If you read passages like Galatians 5, where it says to walk in the Spirit and keep in step with the Spirit, and you read the, the, the full of the New Testament corpus that talks about you know, what it means to, to walk with God on a regular basis, you realize that in a very real way, it's a cooperative activity. In other words, for you to become a better you now, you need to cooperate with Jesus day in and day out. No difference than your kids. If you got kids, you know that you love them. They're secure in your family. There's nothing they can do in which you're gonna reject them as your kids, but... There's a cooperative aspect to being a parent in which if your kids aren't cooperating, they're not gonna become the better them that you want them to be, amen? And that's part of good parenting. God's no different. God says for you to be a better you now, you need to cooperate with him on a regular basis, walk with him through Jesus, and that if you do that, you will become a better you. It's probable in nature. The promise is that you're forgiven and guaranteed a place in heaven there's a probable aspect of your rescue in which you're gonna become a better you now. It's the normal Christian life. But you gotta be careful there because there are some Christians that are saved but aren't really growing that much because they're not cooperating with God. Give me a head now that you all understand that. Distinction between justification and sanctification. Now, we're not done yet. There's another aspect of rescue, and this is the one that most Christians are concerned with, which is why we have to clearly understand this, and that is, well, what about the rest of my life? What about my marriage and my kids and my money and my job and my emotions, which are so messed up, and my health, which seems to get worse as I get older, and society, it's like going to H-E double toothpicks in a handbasket. I mean, what about society? And again, I don't know if you noticed today, but Christians, especially in America, we're so concerned about that. And here's my point. We're very hazy on exactly how and where Jesus will save those areas of our lives. Again, we're talking about rescue. And we've seen that there's a promise that he's gonna save your pathetic soul for all of eternity through forgiveness and eternal life. There's a probable aspect in which he's gonna rescue you in a better life now by making you a better person. Here is the word that we need to understand when it comes to these areas of our lives. And it's the best I can give you. It's the best that the Bible gives you. And it's what very few Christians accept today. And that is that these things are possible. But they are not 
promised, and they're not even necessarily, given the history of the world, probable, but they are possible. And the reason that they are possible is twofold. One, God cares about them. He cares about your marriage. He cares about your kids. He cares about your health. He cares about your job. He cares about your money. He cares about society. He cares about your health. He cares about your emotions. But all these areas of our lives, not tell me if this isn't true, involve a lot of moving parts, involve a lot of other people, and it's not just as simple as making you a better you. Do you understand that? I mean, take marriage for an example. I've been married 33 years. I got a great relationship with my wife, Kim, but I learned on day two of my marriage that it takes two to tango, amen? I learned on day two of my marriage that this is not as easy as me living alone. This is not as easy as me and Jesus. That this, that she's not a cooperative woman sometimes. I mean, this is a very difficult thing, this thing called marriage. And by the way, I can only joke like that because I'm usually the uncooperative one. And so marriages aren't written in stone. They're a covenant. They're a contract in which you each got to hold up your end of the bargain, if you will. Let's be realistic. And so, yes, God wants to save your marriage, but there's a lot of moving parts there. And that's not the promise. The promise is to save your soul. The probable is he's gonna make you a better you. Does he care about your marriage? Does he care about your kids that they turn out where? Does he care about your money that you handle it well, that you have job satisfaction, that you can heal damaged emotions, that you can stay somewhat healthy? And does he care about the society around us? Absolutely yes. But here's the problem, gang, and tell me if this isn't true. Christians in America, <laughs> I'm gonna use a different color marker here. Christians in America have taken all these things that God calls possible and we've told people that he has promised us these things. And I hear it all the time in sermons. I hear it on Christian television. I hear it on Christian radio. And though very few ever say it overtly, there's some TV preachers that will say, if you give me money and believe strong enough, then he will do these things, which is absolute heresy. That's not found in the Bible. Most of us do it more seductively. We essentially say, you know, I got Jesus in my life and I gotta tell you, I'm faithful to him and my kids aren't turning out right and my marriage is still on the rocks and, and my emotions that were damaged when I was five, I'm still dealing with those and he's not taking that stuff away and there's gotta be something wrong. And God says, no, there's nothing wrong except that you're confusing the promise with the possible. Because again, does God care about those areas of your life? Absolutely. But the whole history of the world, the Bible itself tells us that the promise is that he saved you and rescued you for all of eternity. The probable is that he wants to make you a better you. But all those other areas, as much as you'll see some action there and you'll see Jesus pull a fast one and, and definitely save you at times, there'll be a number of times as well where he doesn't do what you want him to do. And most Christians, they cry foul at that point. And we demand from God that which he has said, don't you dare demand that from me. It's no different than your child. When your child says to you about an hour before dinner time, I want a candy bar. And you say, no, it's gonna ruin your dinner. I'm gonna give you a great dinner of, of meatloaf and broccoli or whatever you're into. And the child says, no, I want a candy bar. You're not a good mom, you're not a good dad. And you kind of smile at that and, and say, what do you know? because you know better for them. Could it be that God knows better? Could it be that there are plenty of times where he doesn't give us what we want 
or even what we think we need because he's up to something else or there's somebody else involved or what have you. Again, I'm going to keep going back to it. You got a promise that the whole book of Hebrews is going to underline. You got a probable that's going to help you grow up as a Christian. And then you got a bunch of possibilities in, in which he might do these things, might not in your life. Trust him for them. Ask him for them. We'll see in a minute here. But don't confuse the promise with the probable and the possible. It's how many Christians get messed up today. And then last thought with this before we wrap it up. Here's what's also really cool about this understanding once you get it. And that's that once you understand that there is a promise tied to Jesus, a probable tied to him as well, and a possible, you realize that this is the area where most of us need to persevere, right? No one needs to persevere here. You don't because it's not about you. You didn't die on a cross for anybody's sins. Jesus did. You didn't woo anybody uh, to the Son of God. Jesus did, and the Holy Spirit did. This is done for you. Theologians call this passive receptivity. You passively simply receive what Jesus did for you. There's nothing to persevere here on. He's the one that's persevering you all the way to heaven. Amen? That's why it's a promise. It's good news. No, where we need to persevere is a little bit here because some of you aren't growing as much as you want to. Hebrews chapter five will get to us on that one. Talks talking about growing up and becoming more mature. But most of us have to persevere here that we're praying for our marriage and our kids and our finances, our job, our emotions, our health, our society, and, and things don't seem to be changing. And so we say, hey, God, what's up? And here's what's so cool, is that God says the only way you can persevere here is to cling to the Jesus who gave you the promise. And that's what the whole book of Hebrews is gonna outline. See, our world says persevere here by hang in there, you know, tie a knot and hang on for dear life. Just don't give up. Oh my gosh, could that be more trite? You ever had somebody say that to you when you're really down? I want to slug them when people say that to me because there's no foundation behind that whatsoever. It only works in America, by the way. In America, you can say don't give up because there probably is a good chance that tomorrow might be better. But try saying that to somebody in the Sudan. Try saying that sorry, right now to somebody in, in inner Mongolia or China or some of the really difficult parts of the world in which tomorrow's probably not going to look better. Is there a Jesus for them? Amen? Yes, there is. But it's the Jesus of the promise. They persevere even though tomorrow might not bring a better day because they got Jesus. And Americans need to learn to do the same thing because maybe society isn't going to change. Maybe our health isn't going to get better. Maybe your emotions are still going to be messed up. Mine are. Uh, maybe your finances and your job won't get as much better as you want it to. Maybe your kids are in for a long haul. What do you do then? You persevere, but you only persevere because of this Jesus who gave you the promise. That's what Hebrews is going to teach us. Now, parting shot <laughs> to you, and with this we're done. I, I sit in my home office this week, and I, as I always do, I ask myself, well, what do you do with this, Jamie? I mean, you know, I always apply it to me first, because if I can't live this, then I have no right to talk about it. And, and I thought of this. I thought, you know, when I wake up every day, I go through a, a, a spiritual journey in which I embrace the promise and I engage the probable and then I accept the possible. Let me repeat that. I, I embrace the promise, I engage the probable and I accept the possible. What do I mean by that? I, I've told you guys this before but maybe now it will make sense. When, when I wake up every morning, I really work hard to not read my own press releases. I do not wake up every morning and say, hey, 
Welcome to the world, Jamie. You're a big wig pastor of a, of a nice-sized church, and you know, you got a great 33-year marriage, and you got you know, three semi-good kids, and you know, you're doing really well in your life and all this stuff, and you know, I, I just don't think that way. I wake up every day, and I really do do this, gang, because I started doing this 40 years ago when he rescued me. I wake up every day and say, thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for rescuing me from hell. Thank you that I have the promise of eternal life in you. I start my day embracing the promise. And throughout the whole day, I keep going back to it. When I can't control the things around me, which I can't, I know one thing is for certain. He will never leave me or forsake me. That heaven is mine. That no matter how bad it gets here, that's okay. Because I can endure this. We'll see how in a minute. But heaven is mine because of Jesus. And I embrace the promise. And then the second thing I do is I then get out of bed and my feet hit the ground is I engage the probable. I engage the probable. What do I mean by that? Well, I engage the fact that he wants to chip away at my character and make me a better me. And so I start walking with him. I have a quiet time in which I read the Bible and pray. And then I, I try to love people that are rather unlovable. And then I try to keep short accounts with my wife and love my children and serve my church with my gifts and passions. So I walk with Jesus all day and I engage what is most likely probable and that's that I will grow in Christ as I engage him. And then here's where it gets really tricky. I accept the possible. And you're saying, whoa, what do you mean by that? I tried to find an E and I couldn't. So maybe email me with a good E here. But, but I thought I embraced the promise. I engage the probable. I accept the possible. Here's what I mean by that. When it comes to all these other areas of my life, my health, my emotions, my children, my wife, my church, society at large, I pray for them all the time. And I really want God to move there, amen? I really want him to rescue these areas of my life. But I'm always drawn to this beautiful little parable that Jesus told in Matthew chapter seven, verses nine and 10, where Jesus says this. He says, what good father, if his son asks for a piece of bread, would give him a stone. And what good father, if his son asks for a fish, would give him a snake? He said, no good father does that. He says, good fathers know how to give good gifts to their children. Why is that little parable so important? Because what Jesus is teaching us there is that it's good and right, lest you heard me otherwise, it is good and right to focus on these things, pray for these things in our life, and hope for good gifts from God. I hope God saves your marriage. I hope he turns your kids around and keeps them on the straight and narrow. I hope that he blesses you financially and with a job you like. I hope he heals your damaged emotions. I hope that he gives you health and long days. And I sure hope he changes this crazy culture around in our world today. It's good to pray for all those things. But what Jesus tells us, now don't miss this, is that God gives good gifts to his children but then he expects his children to accept from his hand what he gives. So taking that parable even further, can you imagine a child where the good father would give him a piece of bread and the child saying, no, 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 I wanted artisan bread. I wanted gluten-free bread. I, I want whole grain bread, father. What would the father say? Accept from my hand what I give. Or taking the fish thing even further. You can imagine, you know, Father, give him a fish and a nice, good piece of tilapia. No, I want mahi, mahi, Father. You need to give me mahi, mahi. I don't want any of that tilapia. What would a good father say? Eat your fish, amen? 
because children need to accept from the hand of a good father or mother what they provide. It's what we teach them. It's called gratefulness. It's called trust that I will care for you and good parents do that. Do you think God's any different? God knows what we need over here, right? He's God and he knows how to run your life. That's that cooperative aspect. But don't confuse the promise and the probable with the possible. And as you pray for these things, as you work here, we are to expect good things from him, but then accept from his hand what he gives. And here's my parting shot. If you don't do this, you'll just go nuts as a Christian, which is why maybe most Christians are nuts today, amen? Because we're out there demanding from God what we want him to do, and when he doesn't, we're sorely disappointed, or we develop an aberrant theology that somehow he'll do this, and we're all messed up. And all we have to do is remember three simple words. Promise, probable, possible. And a guy come up to me after the first service and said, I'll remember those. If you can remember that, it's gonna keep you on the straight and narrow. It's gonna keep you from getting too disappointed with God. It's gonna keep you focused on him in the right way. You'll wake up every day and engage the promise. And then you'll or embrace the promise. And then you'll go through your day and engage the probable. And you'll accept the possible. And I hope he surprises you with joy. I hope he answers your prayers. But if he doesn't, or he doesn't in the way you want to, you're okay. Because you can persevere, because you're anchored in the promise. And he's got a name. It's Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all that you are to us. Thank you for your goodness and for your grace. And I thank you, God, that this journey that we're going to embark on promises to change us, as we've even seen just a little bit today in our understanding of you. And Lord, if I don't miss my guess, this is relevant to all of us. We deal with these things day in and day out because we're living in the real world. And Lord, it's hard sometimes to make sense of them spiritually. We feel beat up and bruised at times. So God, help us to embrace your promise and engage in the probable and accept the possible and to stay rightly focused upon you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And we all say together, amen.